one of the greatest books of all time, children's books, is called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. In this book, an eight-year-old tells us how his day has been, and you can imagine from the title, it was horrible. I'm going to read you what, how he describes his day. He says this, I went to sleep with gun in my, gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be carsick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. So Alexander's day went. Misfortunes, disappointments, scolding. And he ends like, it ends like it began. There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate limas. There was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony and not me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are like that. I think it's not only eight-year-olds who have days like that. I think we all have days like that. Eight-year-olds' parents have days like that. Uh, I remember hearing this story about a, a Christian father uh, who his wife had just given birth to their fourth child. And their church was bringing in a speaker to speak in the evenings. And he and his wife both wanted to go, but he knew that his wife had been cooped up. And so he offered, he said, I am going to stay home every night and watch the kids. And you can go listen to this speaker. The speaker's name, name was Joe Bailey. And she got to go see Joe Bailey while the dad watched all four kids every night of the week. For the first time, he was alone with all four kids. Here's what he wrote in his journal about that story. His first time alone with his five-year-old, four-year-old, two-year-old, and one-month-old. He said, my four-year-old wants to know, why is it that when mommy goes out and daddy's home, the kids have to go to bed when it's still light out? I tried to feed them dinner, a real disaster. Tomorrow night, I'll feed them in the backyard, they'll eat out of paper plates, and they'll be dressed only in underwear and shower caps. <laughs> Turns out the kids only want me to read the alphabet book because they can tell when I skip pages. Pro tip, never close your eyes when you pray with four kids. I just made a big mistake. I lifted the lid off the diaper pail. <laughs> that one act cleared my sinuses, it killed all the roaches, fleas, and ticks, and it discouraged any would-be burglars. 
I got angry and I said some things I shouldn't have said. Now my five-year-old wants to know who this Joe Bailey is and why I hate him. I think we all have days, days like, days like that where we experience these things and we see them as another indicator that things are going bad. Another thing, and it can start with something simple, like at the grocery store at the checkout lines, you'll see, I don't know if you're like me, but when I'm at the grocery store and it's busy and I see checkout lines, I'm doing these algorithmic maths and estimating people's time and how long they're going to go through. And don't be distressed. The length of the line doesn't dictate the speed of the line. And you're trying to measure, like, how many things do they have? And the big one is how competent is that checker? Like, if they're slow right? And you just figuring all that out, but then as soon as you get in a line, that's the line that goes slower. That happens on the freeway too, right? As soon as you get in a lane, it's just, and these things can, these simple things can compound and make us feel like, man, for some reason, when I'm on the freeway and I get in this lane, this lane slows down because there's a world conspiracy against me driving efficiently on the freeway. <laughs> and this lane slowed down because I got in this lane. And we start to see the world through that, and we start to compound all of these issues going on, and we make them into an interpretation of the day that looks at it as a no good, horrible, very bad day. I don't know if you're one of the things that I struggle with. I have ADHD, proudly. Uh, it's, it was the most freeing thing in my adulthood when I was diagnosed, because it explained so much about my life growing up, and to help me reframe who I am, it was very liberating but I still struggle with it. And one of the things that I struggle with, it's called time blindness, is that I, I kind of lose track of the passing of time in the moment when I'm focused. If you have a kid on the spectrum, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but what, the, what happens in me is it's, there's this response that if I ever think of looking at a clock, it's always with a sense of panic because I'm not sure if five minutes are passed or two hours have passed. And I think, I, I gotta look at the clock because I might have missed my next appointment. Those, the, that feeling of panic uh, can compound on all the other things that go on in a day to help me, or it causes me to kind of frame the day as things are just bad. It's a bad day. It's not just bad when we have a day like that. But you string enough big life issues like that together it's very easy to look at your life like that. Like, this is too hard. This is too much. There's too much going on. Too much opposition, too much frustration. And it could be, you know, maybe your daughter's friends have ghosted her at school and now she's feeling isolated. And maybe you're at school and your friends have, uh, seems like intentionally trying to make you feel worthless. Maybe your company's business is declining and there's the looming fear of layoffs and you're not sure about your financial future. Maybe you're gaining weight and slowing down and you just can't figure out or you just can't do the things you know you should do. These are things that can compound on us and make us feel like the world is against us. And when these things happen, we ask questions. We look at it and go, God, where is this coming from? God, what's wrong with me? Why me? Where are you, God? Lord, what are you doing? What is the answer? What am I to think about this? When you look at all of that through that lens, 
what am I to think about this? In, so, and we get, we, get the, we get the framework for that. One, just historical study, the book of Hebrews, the book of James, and then other things. But we get it right in verse 1 of the book of James. So go ahead and turn in your scripture journal to this page here. These are intended for you to study along, write your notes in the right, study along in the left. Anytime we do a book of the Bible, we, we provide these for you. Um, it says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, a little side note, he's being very humble here. Like he could totally name drop. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He is revered as the father of the Christian Jews. He's respected. He has some nicknames that, that elevate his, his faithfulness to pray and his faithfulness to the cause and to enduring hardship and to uh, staying true to the gospel in the face of adversity. He's got just a reputation that's stellar, but he leads himself as a servant of God and Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says who he's writing to, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And that's important. So he's writing this to Jews who fled Jerusalem after the, the crucifixion or the, the martyrdom of Stephen. After Stephen was murdered, Jerusalem was not a safe place for the Christian Jews. And so they had to flee Jerusalem and they were dispersed to the dispersion. And they were scattered away from their home. They couldn't be in Jerusalem because they were being persecuted for being Christians, Christian Jews. And they weren't at home or safe in the dispersion because they were Jews. So everything around them seemed to be against them. Their businesses were uh, persecuted their social standing and their culture was nothing. Uh, they were living in this time where they were struggling with feeling and experiencing that this is a really bad day. This is a bad season. And so James, being the kind of the patriarch of the Christian uh, Jews at that time, being the wise one, he wrote a letter to the dispersion, to all of the Jews who were feeling this way about, about their existence. They were living it and feeling it. So he says, a servant of Christ, the Lord, of the Lord Jesus, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, and he says, greetings. Now here he says something, consider you're living in a society, and a little bit of this should be true for us, right? If you don't feel like you kind of don't fit in the world, you might not be embracing what it means to be a Christian, because we are living countercultural to the world. And there are places where we speak up and we are persecuted. There are times when we stand for truth, or we forgive someone who the world thinks can't be forgiven, or we're kind to someone who the world's rejecting, or we're standing for the vulnerable that's being persecuted regardless of whether we agree with their politics or not. We defend the vulnerable. That gets us in the mess and we'll feel persecuted for righteousness sake. Here's what he says to, to this. And tell me how this lands for you when he says this. Hey, I know you're going through a lot right now and there's a lot of struggle, but I want you to look at your struggle and consider it pure joy. How does that land? Nope. This, you, you want me to call something that's causing me pain good. Consider it pure joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So what he's saying is, because there's something good that comes out of my trial, I should count it as joy. 
Now, that only makes sense if you elevate and esteem being made steadfast. If being made faithful, is, if being a faithful person, a steadfast person, steadfast, you, kinda, you get the idea of what it means, right? It's, it's not, not blown to and fro by the circumstances. You're standing firm. You're not giving up hope. You're not escaping the problems with drugs, alcohol, um, you know, escaping with TV, whatever it is, where we kind of escape the problems and neglect going, uh, fixing the brokenness in our life. If we remain steadfast, the circumstances don't change who we are. That's the steadfastness. If that is a priority for us, which is the hope that Jesus gives us, it says through the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, we're being made more and more like him. We're becoming, more, we're becoming stronger. We're becoming more faithful. We're becoming more kind. We're becoming more patient. We're becoming more courageous. We're becoming more self-controlled. These are the, this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the byproduct of living faithfully as we are growing in those things. And if that is important to you, then the idea of finding joy in your struggles makes sense. But if you're, what's important to you is escaping hardship and having a life that doesn't have any struggle, doesn't have any pain, that doesn't have any, then this makes no sense. Because so many people are living life as if the purpose of life is to avoid difficulty. The, the metaphor that makes a lot of sense to me just to kind of frame this is just physical exercise and but the idea that uh, if you want to build muscle, there's a season of discomfort that you have to go through. If you want to get healthy, there is a season of discomfort, a trial that you have to go through in order to get strong. So in that, I would say like when, I don't know if you've ever run, when I was in the army, we would do 25 mile road marches and marathon runs and we would, we would do the thing called run till you drop. <laughs> and literally they would just go until everyone dropped. I don't want to do that again. So, but if you want to achieve your second wind, which is a real thing, you have to push past the pain. You have to push past the discomfort. And that makes sense to me. So if I put that in the context, if my goal is to become more righteous, more holy, more steadfast, stronger, now why do we want to become stronger? Because you are made for a purpose to make the world a better place. You have a purpose to make the world a better place. That's your purpose. We all have that purpose. We can put scripture around it and say we are called to bring God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Anytime someone's suffering or someone offends us or someone, and we, we meet suffering with sacrifice and kindness, and we meet offense with forgiveness, we are showing the kingdom of God, the values of God, the economy of God, the spirit of what, it, what heaven feels like. We're bring it, bringing it to earth for someone. And that's God's plan for his church. That we would be the conduit of his grace to the world around us. And when we do that, that is our purpose. And if we are going to do that effectively in our marriage, in our home, in our family, in our workplace, in our community, we need to be steadfast. We need to not be shaken by the problems 
of the world. We need to not be so easily offended that we react with something that can divide us and something that is self-centered. When we can meet offense with steadfastness. Now that doesn't just happen. You need to grow. We need to grow in life. Watching a child grow, there's an emotional strength and maturity that happens over time. And it's the same with us. And the thing that causes us to grow is the tension and resistance in life called trials. Those are the things that help us grow. Consider it pure joy. You notice he doesn't say, consider it pure joy that trials suck. Like, consider it pure joy because the, the point isn't about um, going to the Bible and praying to God. And this is the way a lot of people use God. They're going through a hard time. They go to God and they pray for him to end their struggle. And when God doesn't end their struggle, they say, where is God? I'm praying that God ends my struggle. Where is God? He must not exist because I am struggling. Therefore, I suffered pain. I suffered loss. Therefore, God can't exist. Where is God? He didn't save me from my struggle. This isn't talking about that. There's lots of verses in the Bible that talk about There's lots of passages and parables and stories and teachings that talk about where do we find hope when all seems lost. But I just want to stay faithful to what James is talking about. James is not addressing that at all. So we can't conflate that. We can't look at this and go, oh, uh, you know, we're not looking to James to tell us uh, that there is hope that our pain will be healed. There are passages like that. James is saying, given that there's a hope that your pain will be healed. Even in that, it's a struggle. And you can consider that struggle joy because it accomplishes a purpose. That changes everything. And you can imagine why James will be sending this to the dispersion, to those who are scattered and feel like they don't fit, they don't have a home, they don't have a foundation to grow from. They're being persecuted every time they turn around. We ask these questions when we, when we look at our trials and we say, God, where are you? So let's talk about this struggle, these trials. I want to talk about what they're not. There's some things that James is not saying. He's not saying, I'm so happy, I just learned I have a terminal illness. No. He's, he's not saying, I'm rejoicing, my girlfriend just dumped me or my boyfriend just jumped, dumped me. Or, I'm ecstatic, I might have to file bankruptcy, or my husband's out of work, isn't that funny? Like, no, he's not saying that. We're not to buy into a religious delusion that somehow there's joy in the midst of, or that that the, the, the struggle causes happiness. That's crazy. He's also not saying just grin and bear it. He's not saying what we would say in the army, suck it up and drive on. Like, he's not... He's not saying any of that. That dismisses the fact that the struggle is real. James is embracing. This is a struggle. This is a trial of many kinds. There are many kinds of trials. Here's also what he's not talking about. He's not talking about these trials. He's not talking about uh, um, the result of our sin or foolishness causing unpleasant consequences. He's not talking about that. 
He's not talking about our wrong actions that result in a consequence or discipline. Cheating and getting expelled from school, we don't rejoice in that. Catching a STD or, or addiction from uh, just a misuse of, of drugs and uh, losing a friend because you betrayed them or feeling the effects that happens on a relationship in a community when gossip, when you participate in gossip, it's so destructive. When you participate, there's consequences, there's brokenness. He's not even talking. The Bible has things to say and there's teachings about that stuff. But the trials James is talking about is different. He's not, also not talking about the normal hurdles and obstacles that God intends us to work through, like temporary difficulties, like if you're learning how to play guitar, you're going to be really bad at guitar for a while, and you're going to grow calluses, your fingers are going to get raw, and if you're like Ryan Adams, right, or Brian Adams, your fingers are going to bleed in the summer of 69, right, that's going to happen. He's not talking about those things, the struggle from building a skill or anything like that. What he's talking about is the trials where you didn't do anything to deserve this difficulty. It's the, you're, you're going countercultural against the world, and there's resistance. So when you stand up for truth in a setting, you're going to get mocked or persecuted. When you stand up for the vulnerable, when someone wants to we have, this happens a lot when we talk about Chuck's ministry with our prisoners. There are many people who think prisoners don't deserve a second chance. The fact that we do believe in restoring people to community from incarceration, we get the persecution. We feel it. That's a trial. So things that you didn't cause. Maybe, maybe there's a, um, you know, a disease in your family that's struggling you. Maybe your financial future has been compromised somehow. You know, you're your employment may be in jeopardy, you, uh, your investments may have tanked or whatever, but there's these trials that um, we, are, we find ourselves in that just kind of happen. Some of the stuff happened to us as children, maybe, maybe the pain of dysfunctional parents or addicted parents. Like There's struggles, lifelong struggles that come from that. And so what does he say to do in those struggles? And this doesn't make it easier to hear just because I've explained it this way, but it kind of puts it in its lane as the author intended, as James intended. What do we do in those things? We consider it not just joy, but pure joy. Consider it pure joy. Now, let's look at that. Consider. Consider it. What is he saying? Consider it. I, I think of it like this. Think about it. Address it head on. Think about the trial. Consider it as, think it through as, it's refining you and making you stronger. And as you do that, you'll realize my goal is to become stronger. I want to become more healthy. I want to impact the kingdom of God. I want to be a stable presence. This is something I, I talk to a lot of parents of adult children. I want to be a stable, secure presence in the life of my adult children. So therefore, when they do the things that young adults do, like don't think about you, don't call you, don't text you, <laughs> forget your birthday, don't ask to get together, like we all did it, they, they're doing it. We don't react with emotional 
baggage that drives them further away. If we're strong and stable and we're committed to the process of this season and letting it do its work in us, we get to be a stable strength in the world around us and people that need us to be stable and strong and secure. I consider it pure joy that I have things in my life that have helped me be that. Because you don't just do that because you're old or just because you've existed so many years. Wisdom doesn't come with just time. It comes with trials and overcoming. Because what we're battling against, I think, is this deep insecurity. And you know what overcomes insecurity? Achievement. If you can face your fears and overcome them, you have a courage and a confidence in yourself that that thing that once held me back, I had victory over that. Now that is doing its work in me to make me strong. I'm a stronger person today because I was faithful to God's, God working himself in me in the midst of my struggles, in the midst of my trials. When you're pursuing righteousness and you're submitting to that and you're saying, I commit to staying engaged faithfully, God is working in you. And time is actually your friend. Time is on your side. Because as you work that out, one of my bosses said to me once, I was having difficulty with a manager, and I went to a supervisor, and my manager was crazy. I was young and arrogant. I thought I had all the answers. Um, but as I look back now, the manager was still wrong. But <laughs> I, he said something to me. He said, time will either expose you or promote you. And I know what he was trying to say. He was trying to say, just be patient, that manager is going to be revealed in time. Like it's like karma and all that, like it'll come back around, don't worry. I know that's what that was the message they were trying to say, but you ever heard of a mind virus? Like something that gets in your brain and it stays with you to where 30 years later you're preaching it from a stage? Like <laughs> time, will, will, time will either expose you or promote you because it hit me a few days later that that's true for me too. That's not just something to vindicate the stupidity of this person. It's how I react to this person will reveal who I am and what I am doing and, and, and what my character is. And, and it will shape my future and my character. How I, am I going to stay faithful to being a person of integrity and refuse to gossip and refuse to seek to destroy and, and refuse to manipulate and refuse to play the corporate games that are played in a corporate setting? And I live righteously in that moment. It, there is a joy because something is getting worked out in me to make me stronger and more mature and more complete in my faith. So when we consider, when we stop and consider it pure joy, it's almost like we're going on this adventure to see what God's going to do and, and the struggles and the trials are part of the narrative of the adventure of what are the great things I get to overcome. And you start to see obstacles as opportunities. And how do you do that without living in a delusion where you're, you don't give yourself freedom to grieve or mourn. Because in no way is James saying, you know, abandon truth and, that, and, and disregard your grief process. He's saying healthily 
in a way that honors God and keeps him on the throne and keeps you healthy, grieve, mourn, rest, restore. And he will restore you and he will heal you. And even in the grieving process, there's a faithfulness that we're called to. And the fruit is maturity. That's the little two-step here uh, that he's, he's kind of outlining. The trial is designed to develop perseverance. And the per- perseverance or h- hanging in there or steadfastness, that's what leads you to complete maturity and godliness. So, time will either expose you or promote you. Now, how might this play out in your life today? Maybe someone at work is difficult Maybe it's the most difficult person you ever had to deal with. Maybe they're crude and, and it makes you uncomfortable. Maybe they just are a suck-up and it, make, it frustrates you that your boss is snowed by their cheesiness. And I don't know. There's lots of situations where we find ourselves in a trial Something you didn't do anything, but you find you didn't deserve it, but you find yourself there. Like in the workplace, your only option would be to quit, but you don't want to quit. You find yourself around someone like that. What do you do? Well, just consider it pure joy. Doesn't that still sound so empty? Just eh. unless we embrace that we have a higher purpose than avoiding conflict and avoiding pain and struggle. If our purpose is to bring God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, there's a strengthening and a process. And then we can kind of look at our lives and consider them, consider our struggles, and say, this has a purpose. Giving your trials a purpose is where we find the joy. So consider it. Work it through. All right. I want to lead us in a prayer right now. As the, I'm going to ask the band to come back up, but this is kind of the whole, the whole net of it. So you may have a trial right now you're going through. Uh, what is testing your faith? It may be poor health. It may be loneliness. You may have a child on the spectrum. You might be on the spectrum. You may have reached a wall in your career and you don't know how to get over it. Maybe there's overwhelming demands at work. Maybe you have a friendship that's tenuous and you're disappointed in a friend. Someone let you down. Maybe you let someone down and you don't know how to apologize. Maybe there's family conflict. There's a lot of trials. There's many kinds, James says. There's a lot that we go through. And we can find hope that these, even these trials have a purpose. James uses a word, uh, or the English translation translates a Greek word of something James wrote in Aramaic or Hebrew, <laughs> but it's the word testing. And I want to clarify something because we kind of we take the word test and we put our understanding of what a test is and say, well, it's either pass or fail. It's a testing of my faith. It's pass or fail. And if I don't pass, I go to hell. Like that seems to be the way we, we kind of make these, these distinctions. But when we look at at what could be the meaning of that word that fits in the context of this, it is approving. Some some versions say it's approving, but not as if you have to prove something. It just reveals 
what is there and strengthens what is there and it proves to yourself and gives you that courage that your faithfulness has strength, that your faithfulness has a purpose. And in that we find encouragement and conviction and strength to overcome the trials. Our focus uh, is prayer today. And what I'd like to ask you to do is to pray with me. Uh, so would you, um, let's just all kind of go into our own space with God right now. Let's kind of do business with God. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And we're going to pray. And uh, I'm going to ask you to consider some things. The trial is intended to produce perseverance, but you have to decide whether you will let perseverance finish its work. You decide whether you will accept that God is doing something in your trial, in your struggle, and He's doing something good in you. And you have to decide whether you will be willing to endure it as long as it takes. Now, if you find yourself still chaffing and pushing back at the, the situation, and you find yourself like resisting this and resentful that you have to face a trial, you might be angry with God for not doing something about it. You may angry, be angry with a person for not jumping in and saving you. If that's still where you're at, then the reality is you haven't come to the point of submission to faithful enduring. Because somewhere along the way, you have to decide to let your steadfastness, let your perseverance finish its work. Somewhere along the way, there must be this gentle yielding to God, a moment where you make the decision, Lord, I will let you finish the process. Whatever you're producing in me, I want it. So if this is where you're at, I want you just, in your own way, kind of affirm these words in your head that says, Lord, I will let you finish the process. I will stay steadfast. I pray, God, you keep me steady. Keep me focused on what you're doing. God, don't let me take my eyes off your love for me and the good work you're doing in me. God, let this endurance, this perseverance, this steadfastness, let it finish its work in me so I may be mature, complete, lacking nothing. God, you are making me what I long to be. And whatever that takes, God, I consider that pure joy.
Thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that when I waver from this, you forgive me. Thank you that I can be restored to hope and thank you that you, don't, you, you love me too much to leave me broken. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are developing perseverance with you. In Jesus' name, amen.